Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On the last official day of the Supreme Court's most recent term, the court issued the much-anticipated decision in the 303 Creative case, which involved an owner of a graphic design firm who wanted to expand her business to include wedding websites. However, the owner opposes same-sex marriage on religious grounds, and she didn't want to design websites for same-sex weddings. So she also wanted to post a message on her business's website stating that she would not create wedding websites for same-sex weddings. The Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating on the basis of numerous characteristics, including sexual orientation. The owner of 303 Creative brought an action arguing that the Colorado law violated her right to free speech under the First Amendment. In an expected 6-3 decision written by Justice Gorsuch, the court found in favor of 303 Creative. Justice Sotomayor filed a fiery dissenting opinion. If the facts of this case sound familiar, it may be because you're thinking about the 2018 case, Masterpiece Cake Shop. It was another case involving a business owner refusing wedding-related services to same-sex couples. In Masterpiece, the court ruled in favor of the bakery owner, citing that his religious beliefs were not given due consideration and that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had demonstrated hostility towards these beliefs. However, the court did not decide the larger issue of whether a business can refuse service based on religious or First Amendment objections to same-sex marriage. The court did so, answering that question in 303 Creative. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the court's ruling in 303 Creative and its implications. Joining us for this discussion is one of our frequent guests and our colleague and former mayor of Carborough, North Carolina, Professor Lydia Lavelle. Professor Lavelle teaches sexual identity and the law, civil procedure, and state and local government. Professor Lavelle, as always, Thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, thank you, Professor Dawson. And thank you, Professor Joyner. So, Professor Lavelle, I'd like to have us um, go back to Masterpiece. You have been writing about Masterpiece 303 Creative. You've been in this space for a long time, um, teaching about it, writing scholarship about it. Before we talk about 303 Creative, can you set the the framework a little bit by giving us some background about Masterpiece and how that case has brought us up to the current court's decision in 303 Creative? 
Sure. So, so, so Masterpiece, um, as you noted, was a Supreme Court uh, decision in 2018. And, and the reason we had Masterpiece was because we had two prior United States Supreme Court cases, um, the Windsor case in 2014 and Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015 that, that legalized same-sex marriage, okay? And so, and so once we legalized um, the ability for all couples to get married, regardless of their sex, uh, then we started to see these kind of suits that we see in Masterpiece and that we see in a 303 Creative uh, start to pop up around the country. Because uh, we may, you may recall when uh, marriage equality uh, you know, came to the United States, um, we, we also had a lot of, of folks who had performed even wedding ceremonies kind of try to you know, raise objections uh, around uh, whether they had to constitutionally even marry people. And, and so that's been kind of an interesting um, also offshoot of this. Um, but then in addition to that, we now have had you know, many, many suits brought by folks who, who in the course of their you know, general business provide services to couples who are getting married. And so that led us to the Masterpiece case in 2018. And, and it's interesting, you know, both of these cases are out of Colorado. They both deal with the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Um, it's, a, it's a CADA, as you, as you referred to it. You know, it's been around for many, many years. And in fact, Colorado was one of the first states to, in the late 1800s and 1900s, you know, have a pretty broad public accommodation, you know, not discrimination act. And so when we had Masterpiece happen in 2018, that case came about because there was a, a same-sex couple that wanted to have a, a cake created by Jack Phillips, who was the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop. And um, Mr. Phillips is an is a extremely religious man. Uh, his religious, he, 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 the record you know, shows he, he definitely has a religious belief, a strong religious belief um, against persons of the same sex being able to get married. Um, he says he would, you know, make them cakes or sell them goods for any other kind of a service, but he does not want to have to sell them a cake celebrating at the time it was a marriage, which wasn't yet legal even. Um, and so that ended up, uh, with a suit against him from the same sex couple that ended up at the Colorado civil rights commission, which eventually ended up the United States Supreme court. Now, in that case, because Mr. Phillips lost. He lost at the lower level. He lost the Colorado Supreme Court um, because it was found to be a, a violation of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which essentially says if you're going to operate in the public square, you know, you need to serve everyone equally. And, and, and regardless of their, you know, race, age, et cetera, et cetera, sexual orientation, gender. So um, his, this decision went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And it was watched with much anticipation by, by all communities. And the decision in that case was kind of a, a pun. They punted the decision. They, they looked at that case on the facts, the extreme facts of that case, which at the uh, district court, actually even the, I guess, the commission level, uh, evidenced a strong hostility toward Mr. Phillips. And so they found that he wasn't given the kind of uh, neutral, um, you know, kind of, um, I guess, of decision makers, the, the, the neutral grounds that he was allowed to be given. And so 
the court kind of dismissed that on its facts, did not did not come up with any reasoning that we could call precedent, and kind of outlined the issue, outlined the, the problem that they knew would someday come back to the court. And that court was very split. And Justice Kennedy authored that case. And Justice Kennedy, um, it was one of his last decisions. He had he had written, you know, many, many decisions that um that LGBT people had looked at, you know, fondly, I would say, uh, and kind of some hope that he would be able to garner a majority support for his decision, but it was not to be. And so that that decision, which we'll kind of explore further in 303 Creative, you know, left a lot of questions unanswered. Now, with 303 Creative, and, and that case was actually in the pipeline, even as the court was deciding Masterpiece, um, there have been some questions about whether standing was really appropriate in 303 Creative. Can you talk a little bit about what that controversy is about? And, and also, as you talk about that, speak to how um, efforts are being made to make sure that there are, are cases that can move through the court system for those who are trying to take advantage, if you will, of a more conservative Supreme Court? That is a great question because, you know, both sides do it, right? You know, when, like when we had the Windsor case that said the federal government must recognize same-sex marriage, you know, the same thing happened in many of the states. There was a push to get to get cases through to make sure that it could go to the Supreme Court again to make sure that was actually the law of the land, right? So we kind of see that. Um, Oh, gosh, in all kinds of, of areas of, of, you know, I don't want to say controversy, but areas with strong opinions on both sides. And we do see really methodical ways of, of, of trying to find the right plaintiffs or the right defendants and trying to move those cases along. But that's historically what it's been. You find the right plaintiff who feels like they've been wronged uh, and, and, and you, you know, you push that case along. Now, what happened with Lori Smith, and this was this was argued. I don't go into it in my articles. I didn't go into too much in my research because it was kind of a dead point. Um, she hadn't even started her business yet. It was more. It was a hypothetical. I would like to have a wedding website, but I don't want to serve same-sex couples. But I don't want to start and then have to shut down and get you know, get a violation from the Civil Rights Commission. So she kind of went about what we call like a declaratory judgment, right? She kind of wanted to know ahead of time what her rights were. And, you know, if we could do that for every issue, wow, how much easier things would be than to try to go out and find someone who was wronged. I mean, in Masterpiece, you had a couple who actually went and said, I would like to have a cake, and they were turned away. But here we have a designer who says, I kind of want to do this, and there's no one on the other side to say, but you're hurting me. So it is a strategy. It's a strategy that, um, that there's an a, a organization, the Alliance Defending Freedom, that's really been working a lot on these cases and, you know, kind of, you know, um, trying to move them along, as you say. Um, and because there is, you know, we very definitely have this conservative court that's going to be open to these kind of arguments that these plaintiffs are bringing. Well, you know, the uh, and that's an interesting uh, point that I think that our audience ought to to understand that in uh, Masterpiece, there was a victim. 
uh, an entity that had sought services. Services were uh, available or product was available and was not provided because of the particular uh, sexual preference of uh, those individuals. And in that sense, that person was turned down so that there was harm. There was a person who had been or could be designated as the victim. And that person sought a remedy for the harm that they had suffered. Uh, and now the difference in this uh, 303 case is that there is not a victim. Uh, there is someone with an idea uh, that uh, one of these days, I might run into this situation and I want to know before I start my business whether I'm going to uh, uh, violate the law if I uh, uh, refuse at that time, if it occurs, to offer uh, this uh, service to these uh, individuals. So in that sense, the issues presented, and we're talking about here uh, in 303, First Amendment. Uh, freedom of uh, speech, freedom of uh, religion, and the creative nature of what the person might be asked to do, as opposed to the situation where the person was asked to do something and they refused to do it as a part of uh, their uh, ongoing uh, business operation, which was deemed to violate that state's uh, civil rights uh, statute. Uh, now, having said that, Aren't we dealing here with a, an advisory opinion, which the court uh, has always said that we don't give? Uh, why are we in this situation? Right, right. Well, you know, I, I think that this court <clears throat> decided to take it up and decided, you know, the court can do what the court wants to do, right? They decided to uh, forego the, the issue of standing forgo this, this, the fact that there was not a truly aggrieved party and decided to go ahead and, and run with this. You know, I will say this, that there is some evidence that some of the very early pleadings in this case did point to a person who supposedly reached out to Lori Smith about a website and then some further I guess, investigation by others found that that indeed had not happened. So they kind of, I think, reversed course at some point and had to shift into a declaratory judgment. So I think from its very genesis, this is what they wanted. They wanted it to go all the way to the Supreme Court and have the Supreme Court issue a, a holding, a, an opinion with reasoning that, that would bind, you know, courts across the nation. And if I can ask, I, I know Irv has another question, but just to to follow up on, on the point of how this case was manufactured in some ways, we've got a non-injury. Um, there are those that have made the very valid point that the current posture of the case means that the only person who is being focused on in the factual discussions uh, is Lori Smith, as opposed to someone who has been aggrieved on the other side. So even in terms of looking at the factual context of the case and providing real humans on both sides of the equation, we don't have that. And so with Masterpiece, you know, we had a couple that wanted to celebrate their wedding. We had a mom of, of one of the individuals and it really does humanize 
um, those that are being discriminated against. Professor Lavelle, do you have any thoughts on the challenges that present when you only have one side being humanized and the other side not? Right. No. Well, I mean, that's a it's a huge, huge difference. Um, and, and this was bantered about also, um, you know, in the early stages of this and at the, um, the I guess the I guess the appellate level before this. And, and also when I would listen to the arguments of the attorneys, like the arguments during um, the Supreme Court, um, you know, when the, when it was heard, I guess, gosh, it was last fall now, last December. Um, and it puts you at a real disadvantage, right? Because you're just imagining, you're imagining that, oh gosh, uh, maybe someone would ask for this. Oh gosh, maybe someone would be turned away, right? Uh, it's very, very different when you can actually see the people and hear the testimony and get to a lot of, I think, what Justice Sotomayor really appropriately points to in her dissent, you know, which, you know, kind of speaks to, you know, experiences of other people who have been turned away, literally turned away at the door. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we are talking about the uh, recent Supreme Court decision in uh, 303 uh, Creative LLC, a uh, Colorado uh, case uh, dealing with uh, requests for services in a um, uh, same-sex, same-gender uh, situation. Uh, we're talking with uh, Professor uh, Lydia Lavelle. Uh, who has done a lot of research uh, in this area and teaches a uh, class in sexual identity and the uh, and the law. Uh, we're going to take our break right now. I uh, want you to uh, stay with us as we come back and continue this uh, very important uh, discussion. So we'll be right back. Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. This week on the Legal Eagle Review, we discuss the 303 Creative LLC vs. Elness U.S. Supreme Court decision. The case comes from the issue whether a Colorado web designer has a First Amendment right to reject making wedding websites for queer couples. Ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 that Colorado could not force website designer Lori Smith to serve LGBTQ plus couples seeking wedding websites. In the court's majority opinion, they argue that forcing creative workers to spread a message they oppose religiously violates free speech. For many, this recent court decision does not inspire confidence in the future protections for people outside the demographic majority. The 303 creative decision was the third controversial opinion that came down from the Supreme Court, finishing the court's docket. This is Keanu Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this uh, evening as we continue this uh, discussion on one of the last uh, Supreme Court decisions for this term of court. Uh, it seems that the court always waits uh, until the uh, last day, the last minute, uh, to issue these uh, controversial uh, decisions, and then they run 
out of town to hide and leave us behind to uh, think about it and talk about it. So uh, we've thought about it and now we are talking about it and uh, want to help you to better understand exactly what, uh, what it means. Uh, Professor Lavelle, we, we, we talked about this being a kind of uh, an advisory opinion uh, in the sense of being an advisory opinion, what impact does it have across the country now with respect to the issues that, uh, that are raised if they materialize in the manner uh, anticipated in, the, uh, in this decision? So before I go into that question, I want to say that when that last week of court came up this year, and on June 26th, historically, that's the day that Lawrence v. Texas was decided. That's the day that Windsor was. That's the day that Obergefell was decided. All cases that, that were, were good for the LGBTQ community. When that day came and went, I, I was really nervous because then I knew, well, they're surely not going to issue a bad decision on that day. And if it had been good, they would have, right? So to your point, or they they really do. That last week, we've all learned that the end of June can get really depressing, you know. So so in any event, getting to your your question, or to your your question, you say, well, this advisory opinion, you know, well, we're it only an advisory opinion, right? Unfortunately, right now, and then it's it is the law of the land of this is an opinion from the United States Supreme Court, which, you know, as Justice, I agree with so much of what Justice Sotomayor said that that I almost need to really say that, that it really does um, legalize discrimination against persons who are gay uh, and when it involves religious freedom and involves marriage. Now, you know, we're going to talk more about all of that, right? Um, but, but there are just a, a host of legal questions that this decision, I think, raises. You know, first of all, if you look at the majority opinion and then the minority opinion, uh, you know, it, it's it's as if they were looking at two different cases. You know, the the majority opinion, um, you know, goes very very deeply into compelled speech and says that this is wrong, freedom of speech, and then you know, Justice Sotomayor in her dissent says this is a clear cut case of a public accommodation law. You know, you operate in the public sphere and you should offer your services to everyone. So the two opinions are are just really really far apart. And I think that the complexity is going to come about where, okay, yes, this, this case, this majority opinion on its face refers to someone who does not want to be compelled to create a wedding website. So, you know, that's clearly, more clearly than some other areas, uh, a controversial kind of area with religion, right? But the question is, how far does it go? What services does it cover? Uh, what is creativity? What is, you know, is it bricks and mortar? Is it widgets? Is it, are, are they, are, is it artists? Who all does it apply to? Um, how far do we go with religious belief? You know, same-sex marriage is, that's one that is, you know, has been litigated and, you know, folks have strong feelings about, but, you know, what if you, what if your religion doesn't think people should live together before they get married? And, you know, what does this mean in terms of, just an inquiry into a person's strongly held religious beliefs. There's all kinds of, I think, questions that come out of this this decision, the sixth three decision. Yeah, and um, 
let's to make sure that our audience has an understanding of public accommodations, because as you noted, Professor Lavelle, that's where it gets somewhat complicated in the majority opinion, right? So because you've got a whole host of services that are being offered to the public, not all of them necessarily are considered public accommodations. So we have an individual who has a, a company, she's a graphic designer, she plans on providing websites to the general public. What makes what her business, at least from the view of the majority opinion, a business that falls under or within Colorado's public accommodations law? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, at its heart, and, you know, I'm, I'm pulling a little bit of some languages and good examples from Justice Sotomayor. I mean, it really, it guarantees to every person the full and equal enjoyment of places of public accommodation without unjust discrimination. And, and essentially, like some, some, well, first of all, there is a, you know, federal, there's a Civil Rights Act public accommodation law, right, which historically came out of what we might say you think of historically places of public accommodation, right? Motels, hotels, trains, buses, you know, those kinds of, of, of accommodations. Basically said, you know, can't discriminate against someone based on race and other kind of identities. You know, it didn't even have sex, you know, um, certainly not sexual orientation. And then we had states that started to pass public accommodation laws in their states. And they kind of repeated a lot of what the, the federal act said, but expanded the areas of folks that were covered, you know, often women, often sexual orientation, often gender identity. And, and some states have a laundry list to include nearly every place you can think of today, you know, theaters, gyms, gymnasiums, you know, uh, certainly restaurants, you know, almost anywhere where a member of the public can go in and order services. Now, the United States Supreme Court has had to address uh, public accommodation laws in what we might not think of traditionally as public accommodation. For instance, there's a uh, a United States Supreme Court case uh, against the JCs, a membership organization. And was it a was it a membership group? Was it an organization that should be considered a public accommodation? Another case that the United States Supreme Court dealt with was a parade. Was a parade, should it fall under that category where they had to let everyone walk in the parade um, in the face of an anti-discrimination ordinance, okay, the Hurley case. And then also they had a, a case involving the Boy Scouts. Was the Boy Scouts, was that organization a place of public accommodation? So it's gotten, you know, it, it's a little broader in, in, in ways that we never would have imagined in the 1960s, places of public accommodation. And, and I'll, I'll just mention this point that I go into in my um, article that I wrote about this in the fall. Now we have, you know, places that only operate on the internet, you know, that only operate on the web. And how do we apply anti-discrimination laws to places that predominantly are online companies? And so, you know, just like many areas of the law, you know, there, these areas of law evolve, you know, over time and over the decades. But a, a, a major difference uh, in what we're dealing with here is that the person puts themselves in a position where someone is compelling them to create something rather than being in a situation where they have already created something. They have a business that is open and they deny entry into that business to a person because of their race, gender, 
whatever uh, the situation is. And uh, but here you're talking about contracting with someone and that person uh, in dialogue with you is to create some product from their mind, uh, which is not something that is in S at this point, but something that is to be created. And the court talks about here that you can't compel a person to use their creativity to make something that does not exist, drawing a distinction between what we typically know of in this public accommodation space as something that is in place, like going to a food lion to purchase some orange juice uh, is there. And you can't be refused the ability to purchase that uh, because of one of the prohibited uh, reasons. And, 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 and looking at that, I kind of see that this decision is limited to its facts and does not and should not have widespread application. And while I certainly love uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor, um, think that she kind of overblew the harm that can be anticipated, but I can understand the caution that, uh, that she raises in, uh, uh, in the alarm that she is presenting in, uh, in her dissent. Uh, what, what would be your reaction to that, Professor Lavelle? Well, I guess my reaction would be some of the arguments that were raised uh, during oral argument and some of the questions that some of the justices peppered the attorneys with. Um, for instance, um, I recall Justice Kagan asking Rory Smith's attorney, you know, just what kind of thoughtful creativity actually goes into a, a wedding website, right? And, um, you know, she's, she cited the instance of one of her clerks who had recently got married. I mean, my daughter recently got married. It's kind of like, they're pretty much plug and play. A lot of the wedding websites really are, right? And in fact, the couples themselves upload a lot of the information, you know. It, and so, you know, she was, she was trying to make the point that, you know, there really, really wasn't this, this creativity that you're talking about. In fact, somewhere along the line, it might even be Sotomayor might even say it in her dissent that it's like she, even if she already had a wedding site created, already done and already created for an opposite sex couple, she, she doesn't think that she didn't believe she needed to sell that already created website to a same sex couple by simply substituting the names. And, you know, this happened also with the cake shop case, right? The difference between coming in and buying the cake off the shelf versus creating a cake. In many ways, I think the creation of the cake was a better argument than this plug and play website, right? But um, so I think those are some of the, I mean, I in any of these cases, the dissents and the losing party, if you will, argue worst case kind of scenarios. But we've seen where these cases can go with just a little bit of reasoning. You know, even the Dobbs decision has people worried about the viability of same-sex marriage, right? So you you never dream that these things will lead to where they will lead. Yeah. But just the, and, and I think the the majority opinion, some of the arguments that I think are really good arguments in the dissent, Justice Gorsuch doesn't even address them or bring them up. You know, he does try to, he does address some of the dissent's arguments, but he doesn't bring up 
the good arguments in the dissent. So I love that we're having this conversation about this case. Yeah, and when we think about, yeah, where, where the case would go in, um, Professor Lavelle, you were able to provide more facts and context to the masterpiece um, case, uh, Kate case. And, you know, even though the court didn't decide the very issue that it has decided in 303 Creative, it certainly made it easier for the court to get where it is. Um, and, of course, we have seen that when it came to um, uh, the Dobbs decision, right? If you look at the cases that kind of led up to that, and when we think about abortion rights and what many folks have been saying is, you know, death by a, cal a thousand cuts. And so this is yet another case in the scaffolding that might get us to a place where some, and in fact, I, I guess this kind of raises the question that I have for you, is just based on, even if we just look at the limited facts of this case, if the objection, even though it was based on Miss Smith's religious beliefs, this is not a religious freedom case. It is a First Amendment speech case. If her beliefs based in religion or something else uh, caused her to think that interracial marriages were false, does the majority's rationale in this case, would it allow someone to be able to refuse to serve an interracial couple? Well, that's that's the argument that Justice Sotomayor makes in her dissent, and those are arguments that were made at um, oral arguments. I mean, it's hard to distinguish. I mean, it's hard to distinguish folks being turned away because of who they are under a public accommodation statute, even in the face of free speech. You know, can you selectively decide what groups of people that your free speech trumps? You know, and she goes through the litany of minorities in this in this nation that have kind of gone through this. I mean, she goes through, you know, certainly the struggle that Black folks have had. She goes through the movement for for women's rights. She discusses the movements of folks um, that have disabilities. Um, you know, all of these are groups that historically have been discriminated against. And then the latest group, of course, um, this one, you know, deals with with gay and lesbian couples. Um, and just kind of talks about how how can you because we because a lot of these certainly Lori Smith's objections had to do with marriage, which involved same sex couples. How can you say then someone couldn't use free speech rights? Someone who's against a couple of an interracial marriage, and and so that's that's really what Justice Sotomayor. Um, speaks to, and it's kind of, I think, what you're bringing up, Professor Dawson, um, is there something different about the gay and lesbian community that makes it okay to say, you know, I'm going to, uh, my, my free speech trumps my, the requirement to serve you in the public square? What makes this a religious rights case or an exercise of uh, religion? Uh, I was always under the impression that that occurs when there is a deeply held belief in the tenets of the particular uh, religion, not that I religiously believe in something. 
is there a difference without a distinction? Yeah, I, I think, you know, now again, I'm talking to two constitutional law scholars, so just putting that on the record. But I don't think it's, I think it is a difference without a distinction. Even the rewording of this question on appeal, you know, like the, the Supreme Court is the one that kind of reworked how the appellants had, had issued, had the questions presented. The Supreme Court reworked it as a free speech case, you know, not as a as as anything to do with with religion, but yet it's intertwined. I mean, this is this is the this is the reason she does not want to. Worry Smith does not want to be compelled to speak about something that's against her religious belief, and so um, I suppose there there could be this could open the door to all kinds of areas that you don't want to speak about outside of religion. You know, perhaps. Politically, or I don't even know, you know, that the way that the door is opened is we can't even pull it into something under the law of religion, although that's a pretty big area anyway, but it, it, it seems to be even beyond that. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have been talking this hour about the United States Supreme Court's recent decision in 303 Creative. And we have with us as our guest, our colleague and former mayor of Carborough, Professor Lydia Lavelle. Professor Lavelle has written articles on both the Masterpiece Cake Case and 303 Creative. She teaches here at the law school, sexual identity and the law, civil procedure and state and local government. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I am a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your weekly announcement. The North Carolina State Education Assistance Authority has developed a student financial aid handbook, a guide for North Carolina students and their families on how to pay for education beyond high school. The guide takes students through all steps necessary to find and apply for higher education funding. The guide introduces families to many sources of funding, including federal and state grants, scholarship programs, and private scholarships offered by North Carolina's businesses and organizations, as well as higher education loans. This helpful guide can be found at cfnc.org under the Pay for College tab. This is Shantae McNeil with your weekly announcement. Thank you for listening. And we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Again, thank you for staying with us as we uh, work through an understanding of the uh, dimensions and uh, impact of the recent Supreme Court decision in 303 Creative out of uh, out of Colorado, and we're st- we're talking with Professor Lydia Lavelle, uh, who uh, teaches a course in sexual identity and the uh, law, is the uh, former mayor 
of, uh, of Carborough, and one uh, in which we are very proud of as being our legal, our leading politician at the, uh, at the law school. But we're talking about a very troubling uh, decision uh, here. Uh, Professor Lavelle, when we look at this case and we look at the opinion in Masterpiece case, uh, for instance, uh, they both deal with what I would call uh, advanced protections or more protections that's offered uh, to people under a, uh, the state uh, statutes uh, than are provided under the federal statute. Uh, here we are dealing with uh, a statute which outlaws uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation. That protection is not available under the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, and uh, so what is the impact of this particular decision as it relates to the advanced protections that's available under the uh, statute and how a person might deal with this issue under the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act where uh, sexual orientation is not one of the protected class classes that's identified uh, in, that, uh, in that legislation. Well, I, I think that this case opens the door to attack at any level. Okay, so so first of all, just by way of understanding, um, you know, non-discrimination laws, and, and and reminding folks of of our system of governance in the United States, you know, federalism or federalism, right? So we have federal laws that that you know cover the whole country, and then we have state laws that each state legislature passes, and then you might also have a state that doesn't act, but then maybe localities do. For instance, in North Carolina, we've had a movement over the last two years to pass some local and you know, non-discrimination ordinances that include sexual orientation, right? And so I think that this, this opens the door to attack it at any level. I mean, anytime you have a constitutional opinion from the United States Supreme Court, then any act, whether it's federal, whether it's state, whether it's local, can be attacked. I mean, we, we need only look to uh, a, more, a more happy attack a few years ago where we, we had same-sex marriage in a lot of states, and that led to a decision that led to the overturning of the Defense of Marriage Act, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. And so, you know, these things kind of work both ways. And so I, I would say that uh, the other thing I think is interesting is that there has been very little commentary about this case in, in the public arena. I mean, you know, we heard a lot the last couple of weeks about the affirmative action case. We heard a lot. Of, we even heard about the, the case involving the, the legislative, you know, rights theory case. We heard a lot about, um, you know, various other high profile cases, environmental cases and so on. This one has not really been out in, in front of all the, the, the national news media. And I think it's because people really are trying to grasp the significance of it and how far it could go. It's, it, it could go well beyond just a, you know, a denial of a of a married of a married same sex couple that wants a wedding website or something. It could even go into such areas as you're talking about. Any anti discrimination law anywhere might be able to be avoided based on free speech. Professor Lavelle, as you were talking about the breakdown between federal law, state law, uh, local ordinances, I couldn't help but think about 
the abortion decisions, right? And so when we think about the power of state government from an abortion context, we have the Supreme Court saying, uh, limiting constitutional rights and saying, we'll leave it up to the states. But then when we talk about these additional protections that may not exist in federal law, that local um, or state and local residents have decided that they want either by you know, voting on a particular referendum or voting on the representatives who have then made that decision, that then we have a decision like this, which strips the power from the people who live in those particular states and those particular um, locales. What are your thoughts about the Supreme Court on the one hand, seeming to say, we'll let the states decide, and then on this hand, undercutting a state's ability to provide those heightened protections that the citizens in that state um, want. No, I think it's uh, you. You really put your finger on the pulse of a lot of what has been happening. It's it's as if our state legislatures are getting a little taste of what localities in North Carolina have gotten from the North Carolina state legislature, right? I mean, it's you know, in in theory, um, the the federal government and um, you know. Of course, the Supreme Court isn't the same, but I mean, in theory, there are certain areas that that the federal government, you know, is over and everything else is reserved to the states. Right. So honestly, the states, as you know, really have a lot more power than than folks realize. Right. And in some states, they choose to give some of that power to localities, not North Carolina. They don't. Right. But but anyway, but but then to have I imagine there are a lot of state legislatures that are really frustrated by this inability, as you say, now to to kind of, um, you know, work to the wishes of their of their residents. And, and, you know, it's something I really have learned when teaching state and local government, how different and unique every single state is. Every single state has its own constitution, its own body of law, its own folks. And, you know, luckily we can move to states we want to live in or whatever, move to cities we want to live in. We're all in the United States. And so we all you know, are affected by decisions by the United States Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And so for those folks who made a conscious decision to move to Colorado because they had more progressive anti-discrimination laws, you've got the Supreme Court taking that that power away. Um, The other thing that we've touched upon a little bit, but I'd like for you to explore a little bit more, which is We have, as you've noted, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and other protected classes um, in places of public accommodation. And we've kind of fleshed out public accommodations and what that means. Um, As Irv noted, it doesn't cover sexual orientation, but this decision, which is looking at constitutional right to First Amendment versus legislation. Um, Of course, in Colorado, we're looking at state legislation. If we're looking at the Civil Rights Act, that is federal legislation. So you have this tension between what the Supreme Court has articulated as um, a First Amendment right butting up against this non-discrimination legislation. Do you see on the horizon or what should we be mindful of in terms of those who wish to undercut the federal civil rights law, how they might use 303 Creative 
as a vehicle to say that if someone has um, religious beliefs that uh, conflict with the federal anti-discrimination law, their First Amendment free speech rights should trump that just as the court concluded in 303 Creative. Well, I think we could see that, but you know, I, I, I guess I wanna, I wonder if we will see the kind of blatant discrimination um, you know, that we've seen in the past, right? I mean, we're talking about how, um, you know, this could be used to refuse to serve a black person. This could be used to refuse to serve um, a woman uh, or whatever, right? And, and, you know, people who discriminate have gotten a little smarter in the last several decades, right? And so so it might be used in in ways to disenfranchise or in ways to just make it make it harder maybe for groups to to do things than in the past. You know, I'm thinking of, for example, the way of voting is now, right? It's it's not as overt as it was, but now, but it's it's still happening, voter suppression. Uh, it's a great question. I I think that the I think the gay and lesbian community and certainly the transgender community, they're gonna be the the punching bag for a lot of this, a lot of what happens, I think, over over the next several years. Um, but I think whatever laws created around those groups of people, I think could necessarily filter down to to people in this country who who are getting more emboldened about their feelings of, you know, hate against other groups. And that's kind of the scary part. A decision like this in conjunction with the tenor of the country right now could could lead to something, you know, really, really bad. How, how likely is it now uh, in light of uh, the uh, Masterpiece Cake? case or the uh, 303 creative uh, case that this conduct will be replicated somewhere, that people will seek out these particular services and be denied that now such that it becomes an ongoing uh, issue or is this just a one-time occurrence? Um, I think it's I think it's really possible. Um, I think that, um, and again, I, I don't think this has been as publicized as it could be. And certainly there are states like North Carolina where you can do this already. You can turn away people because they're gay unless you're in one of the cities that has adopted an ordinance, right? So it's it's not like it's a right that's enjoyed everywhere already, right? But I think in a community where you might have uh, folks who fall under one of those ordinances, I think it's really possible. I know when um, when you finally were able to get married in North Carolina, um, I know um, a person who was a magistrate in Orange County who told me that she would get calls from same-sex couples and they would say, can I really come there and get married? Am I really able to? Will I get turned away? And these couples had to be constantly reassured. Yes, you know, we... People here, because there was a law actually in North Carolina, still is where you can refuse. So they had to make it really clear. No, you can come here. You can get married. You know, so I think just that, you know, it'll it'll give some pause, I think, to people much like other groups. I mean, I might look at a place that has certain paraphernalia in it or certain signs in it or whatever. And I might choose not to go in there because they could really say to me, I don't want you here or whatever. So I do think it might, you know, ramp that up again for a bit. 
And that leads to a, um, a question of, of support and, and allyship, right? And, and as you noted, this decision isn't getting the same level of traction as some of the other recent Supreme Court decisions, but certainly within the LGBTQ community, it, it is reverberating and there's a lot of discussion. Can you share your thoughts on, on the type of support and allyship that would be beneficial to the community for those of us that are supportive, certainly sympathize, see the, the danger, the harm, and also the future danger of this decision? Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, it reminds me of when, you know, HB2 was passed in North Carolina. You know, how does a community, how do people reassure the gay community that they're, they're welcome and that they'll be served and that, you know, they're just treated the same as anyone else? I know, um, you know, much like um, in our university settings where you have like what's called safe space, right? Even putting up signs, you know, on, on, on storefronts or on websites, you know, everyone welcome here. We serve everyone or, you know, or just being a member of um, a, a chamber or that, that, you know, is, 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 you know, open to everyone or um, affirming your commitment as a business. You know, um, I think that, and as a community, I mean, communities pass resolutions, communities have events, leaders speak out. And I think that reassures community members that at least in certain areas, you know, they can they can feel like they're welcome and not worry. But I know just even visually being able to see, hey, this is a welcoming place. I, I, I can shop here and I won't be turned away. Now, tell us a little bit more about your article. And for those who would like to read it, where can they find it? Thank you for that. Um, my article was um, published. Uh, last fall, and it was, uh, I can give you the citation in a few moments, um, but it was, I was able to, to get it published um, in a time frame between um, the arguments and the decision. So it, it came out in, in print last fall, and you can Google around, I think, and find it on the web. Um, and the, the title of the article is, um, is, you know, 303 Creative versus Elanus. Freedom to creatively discriminate? Question mark. Okay, so that's that's kind of the the set out of it. Um, it was the Cardoza School of Law, their civil rights journal. Um, but in any event, you know, I, I took these arguments and I kind of went in 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 directions like Soto, like Justice Sotomayor did. But I also kind of noted a few other things, like you know, the the Bostock decision from a few years ago requires any business of fifteen or more. And in many states, it's less than that uh, to 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 not be allowed to discriminate against you know LGBTQ folks, right? That's what the Bostock Supreme Court decision said, and I kind of noted the irony of the requirement of a business to have not discriminate against their employees, but to be able to turn away customers based on speech. So I think there's a there's a disconnect there. So that's one thing I noted. The other thing I noted was just the, the challenge of how do you apply non-discrimination ordinances to online businesses? And, um, and, and you know, Lori Smith, while she purports to sit down with couples and, and talk to them about their story and, and, and their, 
um, a relationship, you know, with the Lord and everything, which again, I, 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 I have no qualms with that, but then ultimately what's created is a wedding website. And, and most young people I know that do that today kind of just do it on the wedding, do it on the, it's entirely a virtual experience. And so I think that there, there has been some litigation around the American with Disabilities Act in terms of how, um, how public accommodation laws apply to folks that fall under ADA. Um, but it's a very different kind of experience than, you know, what we're talking about here. So anyway, those are just some, and then also just the whole issue of personal jurisdiction for my one L's, right? I mean, you know, how, how do, I don't, the whole issue of the internet and personal jurisdiction around non-discrimination, it kind of spins your head around. And now that the court has issued its decision, uh, can we assume that there is another article on the horizon? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I have to, I have to digest a little more. So. <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, no doubt you are being asked to speak a lot on um, on this case. You know so much about it. It's always a pleasure having you on and you sharing your knowledge and, and expertise. And unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our colleague, former mayor of Carborough, Professor Lydia LaBelle, who teaches sexual identity and the law, state and local government, and she teaches our incoming 1L students civil procedure. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope that you have enjoyed the show and that you've learned something and that you will share the show with your family and friends. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. If you miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.